I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Paul Roberts of Colgan on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm terrific. Thanks, Levy, for coming to Napa and good to spend some time with you this morning. Nice to see you. So you were at the University of Texas. I was. I am a seventh generation Texan and I had the great opportunity to say, well, let's just move from Houston to Austin and continue my studies of economics and political science through the lens of a, a great five-year plan at the University of Texas. And it was at when I was at UT that I learned a lot and really began to track down what would eventually be a wine career. How did that get started? You know, Levy, it all starts with a girl. And here was, I was dating this lovely lady with a great name, Anne Elizabeth Taylor, and we were uh, dating and it was my junior year. And she says, there is a wine tasting class at the student union Thursday nights from six to eight for eight weeks for 80 bucks. So I did the quick mental math, you know, the economist's mind and went, wait a minute, Thursday night's always the night that we go out and this could be a pre-party in eight weeks for $80. This is the greatest deal I've ever heard in my life. So I said, book it, let's go. Well, that sounds like it worked out for everybody involved. It did. It was fantastic because what it, the first time in my life, I think I truly had the, where the light bulb went off and I still remember it as if it was yesterday that the left brain and right brain talked to each other. So we had this great wine teacher. He'd been a wine retailer in Austin for a number of years and he stood up and said, the fascinating thing about wine is it can be transformative. It, you, can, you can learn about regions, you can learn about geography, you can learn about politics, and you can also just enjoy the liquid and the food and get a buzz all in one. And I said, okay, come on, stop talking, let's get on with it. And so we quickly put a glass of wine down in front of us, and it was a different color than anything that I'd really seen in wine, but my knowledge of wine was basically nil. My parents didn't really drink much. Um, as a fraternity boy at the University of Texas, it was keg beer and bourbon. So all of a sudden, he says, I don't want you to drink it, it's just for you to smell it. And we all picked up this glass, and there was these incredible intoxicating aromas. I couldn't describe them then, but I just said, whoa, I have never in my life truly had something that smells that different and layered. I'd always appreciated food. Growing up as a kid, my aunt and uncle owned a kind of a cooking store in San Antonio, so I'd spend some summers with them. So I'd always had an appreciation of food. I mean, I started cooking Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner when I was 9 or 10, so now I smelled things in this glass that reminded me of great cuisine, 
where there was these layers to it. And he says, okay, now take a sip and boom, the fireworks went off. And I said, whoa, this isn't fascinating. He then put a piece of cheese down. He says, the cheese is from the same place as the wine. Like, okay, so you had a piece of cheese. And uh, again, I didn't know much about cheese. Tasted the cheese, tasted the wine, the fireworks now turned into 4th of July. And I said, this is interesting. I never knew that these flavor combinations could happen. And he then said, well, now I'm going to tell you when this wine was made. But I'm going to tell you through the lens of reading the cover of the New York Times. So he starts reading the cover. He pulls out this little sheet of paper, and it's talking about Nixon and the gold standard in Vietnam. So I had enough knowledge of politics and history that I said, okay, it's between 1968 and 1972. I have never had a wine more than what was in a you know, a bottle that I bought at the grocery store. And now all of a sudden we're having a wine. This was been in 93. So we're having a wine 20 plus years old. And he says, welcome to the world of wine. And it was 1968 Grand Reserva Rioja from Lopez de Heredia. Um, I don't remember which one at the time, but that was my first experience with wine that I thought was pretty exemplary and extraordinary. So the next eight weeks, I just became more and more the hook was in. Because all of a sudden now, I said there was something that was intriguing in so many different ways. I still remember the first issue of Wine and Spirits magazine that I ever bought. And I cooked a recipe that had Jekyll Chardonnay in it. And I saw Josh Green last week and told him that story. He goes, I remember that issue. So that was 1993. Graduated. Didn't really know what to do with life. Was thinking about going to law school. And then there was an opportunity to get a little summer job working minimum wage before I had to make a decision of what to really do with my life. And it was this great wine store in Houston called Wines of America, and I'd bought wines there. And then I still remember how I discovered that he was looking for part-time summer help as I'd gone to New Orleans with this girl, and we'd spent all the money we had and had a big boozy weekend and then came back. And That's what happens when you start liking expensive wine exactly. from the 60s. Uh-huh. You, get, you get fancy real quick and get poor even quicker. And came home, and there was this little newsletter. And I called this guy named Scott Spencer, and he hired me. And my first day in the wine business was June 6, 1996. So we're on year 20 now. And you worked in retail for a bit, but eventually you segued to restaurants. Correct. I had this great opportunity to eventually go and run one of his wine stores. He had two. It was at this wine store that eventually I met my future wife. I hired her for a summer job. And I started to meet, there was at that time in Houston in um, 96, there was only one or two real sommeliers working floors of restaurants. Houston still had a pretty dynamic wine scene, but the sommelier community hadn't really started to flourish as it is today. In that era, there was this organization called Wine Brats. And Wine Brats had been started by some guys in California, and they said, you've got to bring up this new generation because we can't simply rely on all of our parents you know, they're baby boomers and then pre-baby boomers to continue on the tradition of wine. So there was this little community in Houston, and it was basically, if you're a great waiter, the handful of sommeliers or the retailer, wholesalers, and we all got together and talked about wine and drank wine and had parties and had the themes, and it was great. Small community, but it was a community. It was a very, it was a very tight-knit community because it was also a lot of people never thought, they don't think of, still to this day, as Texas as a wine destination, but for years, it's been the third or fourth largest wine-consuming state. And some of the greatest wine collections in the world exist in Houston, Dallas, Austin. And I you know, learned at the foot of some of these guys. You met some of the key collectors. Exactly. Um, so there was a buddy of mine named Tony McClung, and he was running this restaurant named Rainbow Lodge. And he says, how about you come and be a sommelier on Sunday nights? And I still remember my first shift as a sommelier. I was sitting at a table, and 
I recommended a bottle of 94 William Sullivan uh, Pinot Noir and proceeded to um, take my brand new wine opener and slice my finger. And it was bleeding profusely and I had to stick my hand behind my back and poured wine. And he just shook his head at me. He goes, I don't know if you're cut out for this. But then did that for a few years, but that was more something I was doing at nights and then really focused in on studying and learning and running this wine store. Then I had an opportunity to begin to spend time with one particular great collector, a guy named Lenore Josie. That's how I met Michael Broadbent and a number of guys because he was the uber collector of, of the state of Texas. What was he like? Lenore was amazing because what he had done is he'd started to buy great wines in the 60s when Michael Broadbent first began to find some of these great auctions, Glamis Castle, Woodbury House. And he appreciated, he was an old time oil man and he had this collection that would just, I mean, you'd walk in a room and he'd have a whole wall of coucherie. The other wall would be, you know, pre-Phylloxera Bordeaux. But then he had old California. He had old Riesling. He had everything. And he was, he just wanted to share his knowledge. So here I was, this young kid in the 20s. And I one time cold called him. I met him at a party and cold called him and said, I'd like to sell you some wine. He says, you kind of have moxie to be calling me. So he invited me to this lunch and we were at this lunch drinking these amazing wines. And then I got to meet the kind of the uber granddaddy chef of Houston of that era named Robert Del Grande. The guy from Cafe Annie. Exactly. And this lunch at Cafe Annie and eventually turned into a number of long conversations. And then I realized that here was a guy who was one of the first people to win a James Beard Award from Texas, one of the founders of Southwestern Cuisine. Robert Del Grande. Yes. But he had this extraordinary understanding of taste, meaning a PhD in biochemistry. And he could look at wine. I still today say he's one of a handful of chefs in the United States that understands wine and food almost better than anyone. And I said, how about I'll make you a deal? I know you have this great wine program, but you don't have a sommelier. How about I work for free? And he kind of looked at me askew. He goes, what are you talking about? You're running this great wine shop. I said, I want to learn from you and I will be your free employee. And he says, okay, I'll take free labor. But I mean, do you think that they saw something else in you besides that? Hindsight 2020, I think that they did because I was coming to these tastings. I was educated. I was always the youngest person in the room and I was asking these questions. He realized I had a pretty good palate. They were going through a transition in the restaurant. And he says, well, maybe after all these years of running Cafe Annie, maybe it is time to bring somebody on the floor to not only sell wine, but also educate the staff. Because in Texas, if you think about how you would almost envision old school restaurants in New York. And it was a bunch of old French guys. Well, in Texas, what it was, was a bunch of old school guys that originally had come from Mexico or Central America, but they'd come over and now they'd become the granddaddy great waiters. So we had these waiters that had worked their way through all of the great restaurants in Houston. We're now working at Cafe Annie. I think one time I added up, if you would have looked at the 12 captains of Cafe Annie, they collectively had something like 280 years of collective restaurant experience. So they knew service inside and out. And he says, maybe we can continue to move the bar by bringing somebody that's going to take this team that he'd already developed and take the wine program even further. So I went and I started working for Robert for free every night. Whenever I had a day off, I was still running the wine store. On other nights, still working at this other restaurant in Sommelier. You stop uh, slashing your finger, though. Stop slashing the finger. You know, I'd learned that pretty quickly uh, to get out of the way of the sharp knife. And it was then, after probably doing that for about two months, he sat me down and he says, how about I offer you a full-time job to come here and be our wine director? 
Because it was actually a pretty wine-focused restaurant. It was. I mean, it had been known as the place to go if you really wanted to have a great understanding of wines from around the world. Robert was one of the first people to befriend Becky Wasserman. So we already had a very good Burgundy selection, great selection of Rhones, great California. It was very, very diverse because it was also different because here were these dishes where you'd have mole or you'd have different spice or you'd have aromatic components that a lot of times people said, oh, that's just Southwestern cuisine and they lumped it all in, oh, that's Mexican food and it doesn't really work with wine. And then the biggest misnomer was that sometimes we would use various levels of chilies and they said, well, chilies are hot, hot chili doesn't go with wine. Again, kind of base level understanding. And Robert, more than any other person, taught me how to think and how to taste and how to think critically about when you look at a wine, what are the components of it and then how in turn that works with the dish. Because here was a guy, he was a biochemist, self-taught. So he came at it from a slightly different askew. But ultimately, I think it was through the lens of learning through him and his team there that I had a much better understanding of wine as a whole instead of just going through the usual salt, sour, sweet, bitter components. What was he like as a boss? He was fantastic because he was inspirational. He already had a great chef de cuisine named Ben Berryhill that was on the line running it. So Robert was expanding his restaurants with a number of fast casual concepts. He taught me how to think and how to taste. And his wife, Mimi, really taught me about hospitality because I'd never been in the restaurant business. This was all new to me. In college, I had a lot of friends working in restaurants. For me, it never really appealed. But through the lens of wine, I got sucked in. And then having to sit there and learn hospitality from a family who had this great restaurant, who'd had you know, international acclaim, how to not just geek out and talk about wine, but how to make people feel comfortable at a very fancy dining establishment whether they were regulars or it was their 25th anniversary, and especially through the sometimes obtuse lens of wine, particularly how to make people feel at ease. Because if you can make them feel at ease, make them feel like they were celebrities, whether it was their first time or their hundredth time there, that then ultimately they turn the meal over to you and then you become their guide. So in a way, he's in an expansionist mode. He's opening new outlets, and maybe he wants someone to look after wine like he'd kind of been looking after it on the floor while he's thinking about opening these new outlets. Is that fair? No, I think that's a very fair statement. I mean, he'd had a great general manager and a chef de cuisine that had really helped him, and they were looking to do different things in life, so there was an opportunity. I mean, like anything in life, it's the right place at the right time, and better to be lucky than smart. And I was lucky that I was at these tastings, asking him how he was looking at these wines. And then I just made this calculated decision that it's going to be hard for him to say no to free labor. And um, But eventually he paid you, right? Eventually like he paid shop. me. It's right, like, no, eventually I got a check. Shift, I want you to go make these tennis shoes in the basement. Right, exactly. I was having to iron all the chef coats. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what's it like to be a kind of high-powered wine guy in Houston, though? I mean, that was a quick evolution, but at some level – Suddenly, you're now one of the better places in the state. You're dealing with a lot of wine. I mean, what were the challenges of that? I mean, it did happen so fast. I mean, when all of a sudden I, I think back on this very still very short career of 20 years and the hyper, hyper growth I had in the first few, it's uh, I kind of have to pinch myself. And I think more than anything is what I tried to always remember is that there were people who were nice enough to me to open up doors. I needed to have that same idea. I also needed to ensure that what I did was it didn't just simply was it about me, it was about the team. Because I could be running around the floor of this restaurant trying to hit every table, but 
here you had all these captains that had been doing it for years and they'd already been, you know, serving great wines. Now we wanted to simply raise the bar of what they were trying to do. I also learned pretty quick, probably actually through the lens of being a retailer more than a sommelier, that there's no sense in being a jerk because even in that, in that era, there was a number of wines which were still allocated and you were always kind of second fiddle as a retailer, even as a great specialty retailer that a lot of people wanted to see. So I'd, you know, taken the old Texas adage, it's you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And ultimately, even as a retailer, I was starting to get these huge allocations. I mean, I, I still remember my first Rumier allocation was taller than me. And then you, it was an amazing time in the wine business because you started to see this new shift happen in a number of great wine growing regions. You started to see Burgundy all of a sudden really begin to kind of take off in, I think, around the world, but particularly in the United States. I mean, the first Burgundy vintage I really bought was 93. Bordeaux was having a kind of resurgence. They'd had fame in 89 and 90, nothing in the mid-90s, then 95s. California started. I mean, I still remember in this little retail wine shop sitting there and having a Rajo floor stacked and Harlan Estate floor stacked and all these great wines. You started to see the influx of Australia. So it was this amazing time in the wine business. And I also started to think that I'm a hedonist and I want to try to try as many of them as I can. So let's be nice to people and see if you can get them to open the wines for you. And it was something that Ultimately, when I had the ability to then lead teams that I told everybody, look, our job is to be hospitable, not just to our guest, the in pain, but anybody who has to do with the lens of the wine business. So I know that there's sometimes people who think that you've got to beat up your wholesalers or the importers. I've had a totally diametrically opposed view that ultimately you're going to have a much better career if you work in concert with them. They have a job to do. You have a job to do. How do you work together so they can have success and you can have success? I mean, it sounds to me like you were able to work with these older people without ruffling the feathers and at the same time develop some of the younger guys. I realized early on that I only know what I know. And I felt I was learning really fast, but I also felt that if I wanted to truly actually get not just book knowledge, but real knowledge that you had to kind of tap into the wealth of information, whether it was guys with sellers who would open great wine for you or the ability to work with some of the most extraordinary service staff I'd ever seen that these guys had been waiting on tables for most of their life. It was also the great American story. I mean, some of them had literally come as immigrants, now become citizens. Now they have this ability to make this great living. They taught me about hospitality. And it was I mean, still somewhat of a verbal tradition at that time. I mean, it wasn't oh, so much that you could just pull it up on the internet. I, right. And I still remember the first time I was taking this class, it was 93 at UT, and I went to this professor and I said, what do you think's going to be the bigger thing in the long run, AOL or the World Wide Web? And we obviously know how that turned out. Yeah, right. So it was, sure, there was a lot of books, but most of the, a lot of the books weren't up to date by any means. You couldn't go and all of a sudden learn about Italian wines by any means. California... There was a handful of books, but that whole scene was changing. Australia, there was nothing. Even Bordeaux and Burgundy, you'd read some of the great old text, you know, Oz Clark, Harry Wall, things like that. But it didn't sometimes apply outside of, okay, this is where it is, this is how big it is. There was just changing that was going on and nothing really about old wine unless you looked at Broadbent's book. So you had to go and tap into this knowledge, uh, whether it was the knowledge of hospitality, knowledge of service, 
knowledge of even how to cost wine, much less tap into really understanding, okay, what is the difference between Rousseau and DRC besides where they are? What is that? And I had the lens of a lot of these great collectors who wanted to share. They had access to these great sellers and I was interested and in turn, they opened these great wines for me and it really taught me a lot about how to treat people because maybe it was the Texas tradition, but I saw that if you're respectful and you're nice, sometimes things end up working out nicely for you. So was it basically an oil economy in Houston at that time or what was going on? Definitely. I mean, it's, you live kind of on the power of energy. It's been its ups, its downs. It's much more diverse today than it used to be. But we were seeing that in that era that oil was on the move, the economy was heating up. There was also a bit of, of money coming into Texas from the first kind of dot-com boom, more in Austin than Houston, but there was still stuff driving that. Then quickly we faced that there was the, the dot-com bust that kind of slowed the economy down. And then uh, 9-11, like anywhere in the world, definitely slowed. It was, I still remember the day because I woke up and my sister called me and said, you need to turn on the TV. And I watched the towers fall and I was getting married 10 days later. And we actually had, my wife had a friend on one of the planes. So then you drive to work and there was this big kind of tower building right by Cafe Annie and you saw F-15 circling the building. And I said, the world as we know it has definitely changed and it changed the restaurant business. I mean, I still remember a couple of days later that I got a call from Daniel Jonas. He was stuck in Europe and the only way he could get home was to route through Houston. So he was going to come and sleep on our couch, but eventually he ended up back in New York. So it was a, it was a changing landscape everywhere. What was the next progression for you? So we began to, two years in a row, we, were, we made the finals for the James Beard Awards for Outstanding Wine Service. And I remember Robert told me, you're going to go, you're going to see it, you're going to meet these amazing people. We're probably not going to win, you know, because we're the odd man out. People don't think of it, but we were having enough great wine writers, importers, winemakers, sommeliers come through that they saw like how they looked at Texas, usually just kind of the land of cab and a slab. Here you could go and, you know, you could have mole with Chambon and it was brilliant. But you were also a big thieves guy, right? Like you... Mm -hmm. Remember, I became friends with Terry and Kevin Pike pretty early on, and Rudy Viest was a, a good buddy. And some of my first orders with those guys, they cut me back on my orders. They're like, we don't want you to get in trouble, and we think you're ordering too much wine. And then I said, well, thanks for taking care of me. And then three months later, when we'd sold it all, I said, okay, can I have the rest of my allocation now? <laughs> They're like, okay, you're really into this. Um, because we could pull corks on J.J. Prume or Donhoff and – Nobody really knew these wines, much less Austria and Grower Champagne. And we were as excited by those as great Grand Marc Champagnes or Classified Growth Bordeaux. We just kind of loved wine and the whole array of it. So we were trying lots of things, and we started to get the attention of national media. Then went to the Beard Awards a couple times. First year, we lost to Gramercy Tavern, but it led to a great friendship with Paul Greco. Second year, we lost to the French Laundry, and then which ultimately led to later that night after we lost, being at a party and meeting Thomas Keller, which then you fast forward about a year after that, ultimately led my wife and I moving to California. What was that Keller meeting like? We were at this party at the Gansevoort Hotel and it was a Sky Vodka party and everybody was drinking martinis. And I 
went and congratulated he and Laura Cunningham. And he says, I got to congratulate you for the little restaurant from Houston. And he, he knew Robert Del Grande, but he says, nobody's ever really thinking about wine in context of cuisine and Houston and what you're doing. So welcome to the show and keep coming back. And what did you say? Yes, I am amazing. You're right. No, I said, I mean, you were sitting there talking to Thomas Keller. It was, I already had some sky vodka in you. (laughs) (laughs) Life was good. But, you know, went back to the Cafe Annie. It was right after, I guess I'd already passed the MS exam. Which you did well at. Like you passed it all at one time. Yes, I was very fortunate that I, because I was the first person from Texas ever to even take the exam, I think I was too uh, naive enough to be nervous. So I just kind of went in and I was relaxed. I said, okay, I know it's a big deal because I'd gone through the advanced, but I didn't expect to pass anything. I Do was you think just, that that's been a signature a few times, not knowing how scared you should be about the import of this situation? Yes. I mean, hindsight 2020, you look at it and people go, well, how did you do that? And I say, I, maybe I was too young or dumb to think that it was that big of a deal. I was just happy to be there. And because I was happy to be there, I had kind of this open mind to experience as best I could and try not to psych yourself out. I'm still convinced that most people, they struggle because they get nervous, whether you're an athlete or a sommelier or wherever. And I've seen some of the most extraordinary tasters in the world psych themselves out tasting wine. And I just said, well, I'll have to come back to pass this test. So I was really relaxed and was fortunate to pass. You developed a relationship with Keller, but how did that take the next form? What he called you? or So then he was um, in the process of getting ready to open Per Se in New York and Bouchon in Las Vegas. And Bobby Stuckey, who'd been his sommelier at the French Laundry, decided he was going to leave to go open Frasca. And so I got an email one day from Thomas saying, your name keeps coming up. I remember meeting you. A few people have said that I should at least talk to you. And how about we start a dialogue? So... First, I thought it was a joke. I said, who hacked my email account? There's no way I got an email from Thomas Keller. And then came to visit, and pretty quickly, we established a good rapport. I remember sitting at the front table of Bouchon, having a roast chicken and a glass of Beaujolais with him. And he explained what he'd done, what he was hoping to accomplish through the lens of Per Se and Bouchon. And So what was that? I mean, what did he tell you that he'd done? He said that you know, he'd been in New York, he'd had some success, but then ultimately he found his true vision through the lens of French Laundry and then opening Bouchon. And he said, now there was this opportunity to not see if he could double down and do it again, but also see, could he go back to the city, New York, that he'd not had success in. Because he had a restaurant that ended up closing. Exactly. So I kind of appreciated that he had this, here was this amazing chef that if he wanted, he could have just stayed in Napa Valley and had two restaurants and never did it. He said, I want to see if I can now grow this, grow the team, not for the simply sake, because for Thomas, it never really seemed about money. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to have this empire. It was more, could he figure out a way to now take what his knowledge was and replicate it and recreate it at multiple locations? So it was more of a challenge. And ultimately, that's what attracted me to the position. Sure, testing himself. I think absolutely. And I kind of looked at it. In much the same way, I said, okay, here I am, this you know kid from Houston, only been in wine a relatively short amount of time, had some success, passed the MS, had this great program, but here was you know America's most famous chef saying, here's a challenge. And then he kind of like put the challenge on the table and said, here's the brass ring. You think you have the nerve to grab the brass ring. 
came back, told my wife, I said, this is pretty extraordinary. Sure, it's going to be life-changing. Everything that we knew was in Houston and in Texas, moving to Napa Valley and then all of a sudden New York. But I said, well, here's one of those points in life that you kind of have to stare in the mirror and say, do you want to take the challenge? And Thomas and I had a few more conversations. We came back out. My wife ultimately met Thomas, met Laura Cunningham, and she was one of the final arbiters. And she says, we shouldn't just do this. You have to do this. Because she says, if you don't do this, then you're going to always say, what if, coulda, shoulda, woulda. And we moved back. I resigned from Cafe Annie. And a couple months later, we made the trek with dog and cat through America's Southwest and ended up in Napa in early 03. And then quickly kind of rebuilt the team at the laundry. What was your mandate? I mean, what did he tell you to do? His mandate was, he said, we're going to have a pretty easy line of demarcation. He goes, his job had to do everything with food and vision. He says, everything else as it relates to any liquid is your problem. And I went, well, everything? He goes, yes. So juices, coffees, spirits at the restaurant. So it was also this amazing challenge to say, once again, could it not just be about me and my little team of captains? Now what I had to do is I had to go and find great sommeliers, train them, inspire them, and then they in turn had to do that for the whole staff. So we went from in middle of three with two restaurants in the middle of Napa Valley that were 500 yards apart to within a year later, restaurant in New York, restaurant in Vegas, which Bouchon Las Vegas and Per Se opened within 10 days of each other because of construction delays. So I had- That's some heartburn right there. That was a lot of time back and forth. So I had a house and wife and life in Napa Valley and then apartment in New York, apartment in Vegas and did the triangle for a few years. And then we began to open other restaurants, ad hoc, additional Bouchon bakeries. And it was an amazing time. And ultimately, I look back and it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, there were definitely trials and tribulations, but it was also some of the most exciting times I've ever had in my life. You mentioned 9-11. I feel like from 9-11 to per se, not so many openings in that window. And so maybe that kind of made the magnifying lens on what you guys were doing super strong because it was like, oh, here's this serious opening. We mm -hmm. haven't had one of those in a while. No, I think it, it definitely went on. I mean, I still remember there was a, a magazine article written that was basically all about that. Is this the first grand big opening that New York has seen since the devastation of 9-11? And will the the son who'd been kicked out of New York come back? Will he be, have the ability to survive and make it work? We also had, I mean, we were two twin towers in the middle of Manhattan. There was a number the of- The Time Warner building. The Time Warner building. A number of things that were revolving around that. And watching that building being built, I learned about construction. I learned about unions. I learned about inspiring staff. I learned about the vagaries of hiring in New York. It was, it was exceptional. Because all of that sounds hard to me. Union, inspiring staff, <laughs> and the vagaries of construction <laughs> and permits all sound like it, headache to It's me. been over a decade, so I've had time to heal. <laughs> <laughs> but there was like this big fire and stuff. So we'd opened, managed to get open. I still remember we had this crazy party where Cirque du Soleil was in the foyer of the Time Warner Center doing the circus. And then we had these amazing parties. And again, you're just wide-eyed, like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe where we are. And we opened, and we'd been open for, we opened on Tuesday, and then Saturday we did a lunch service. And then throughout the whole course of moving in, training, everything, the fire alarms kept going off in the building. That Saturday morning, the fire alarms weren't going off for the first time. We're like, great, they fixed it. Then we finished lunch service, and then all of a sudden, somebody came to me and said, Paul, do you see that there's smoke coming out of the vents? Like, oh, look at that. And 
Thomas had this amazing vision. We built a fireplace in the middle of the dining room. So we thought, oh, I thought it was the fireplace. So I grabbed Thomas and then grabbed Laura Cunningham and we started looking and we couldn't figure out what's going on. So pretty scary when all of a sudden you're in a high rise and there's smoke filling the restaurant. All the staff is having staff meal. So we round everybody up. It's snowing sideways and we send all the staff outside. We call on the fire department. We evacuate. And again, my wife still shakes her head that I was too stupid enough to leave the building. But I looked at this and I said, okay, if there's the captain of the ship, Thomas Keller, he can't go down with the ship. I got to protect him. So I stayed in the building with him. And I still remember I have this image of uh, this fire crew running up the escalators right in front of Per Se, kind of between Massa and Per Se, and these firefighters with no fear running up. And there's two groups of 10. Thomas takes one. I take another. We're looking at the building, trying to figure out where it is. And then Ultimately, we meet in the back of the kind of pathway of per se in the kitchen because we couldn't find it. And they had this big infrared scanner and they keep scanning the walls and they say, there's no fire in the walls. And we meet in the kitchen and they do the scanner and all of a sudden the screen lights up white and they said, there's your fire. And this big kind of straight out of central casting firefighter, the captain, you know, big white handlebar mustache accent says, take it down. And these guys just rushed headlong right in and started to destroy this kitchen and you just see the look of defeat in Thomas's eyes. Because this kitchen had just been built like a week ago. Yes. And this kitchen had gone through a number of design changes and rebuilds. The stove was a custom design stove that had to be craned into the restaurant from the ground floor up. And it, the whole restaurant had been built around it. And then they turn on the water and they start spraying it. And because it was the first time the fire lines had been used, the water is basically mud brown hitting the stove. This cloud of steam goes up and it's not gray white steam, it's brown. And then they just destroy the kitchen and the fires and the ceiling and everywhere. And he just, he says, give me your phone. And he starts calling people, per se is on fire, per se is on fire. And eventually the more firefighters come. Uh, I remember looking down in the circle of Time Warner Center and you see lines of fire trucks and our staff. And eventually they got it out and then we started the rebuild. We had a flood in Las Vegas. So we'd had some trials and tribulations. Both restaurants got open. We tried not to think about the heartache of getting them there. I think it was more... The impending locusts that were going to follow these Well, that was events. the reward if there was plague coming next. <laughs> it was like, okay, what else can go wrong? We screamed the staff for bubonic. And, and then, uh, uh, but there was, I still remember a speech Thomas gave um, that I think he'd probably stolen from his dad because his dad had been a Marine. And it was about the hardening of steel. And he gave this speech, and it's still one of the great speeches I remember him giving about through the lens of being forged, you have to basically continue to batter steel and fire it. And then when it becomes forged, then it's so hard. And he says, this is what we're going to do. And I remember the staff right there. I think if he would have said, we're going to go open per se right now in Central Park, they would have done it. They were just ready to go because we'd so inculcated him with a culture and we were ready and we were all in this together that it was a, a great time. Thomas taught me a level of detail that I don't think exists in most human beings because he sees stuff that mere mortals don't see. I still remember this kitchen. One time he and I flew to New York and he walked in the kitchen and there was all this white tile and there was this little wave, a little bump, and he says, you need to rip it all out. The contractor's like, what are you talking about? We just put it in. He goes, it's not perfectly smooth. And that was what his vision was. It's what he'd had success with. It was the expectation. In turn, it kind of flowed down from there. So he had a level of detail that was beyond reproach. And in turn, we tried to make sure we put it into everybody else as it related to all aspects of what we were doing. 
And we took that culture and tried to say, if they can do that in the kitchen with that level of detail, and we're going to do it in the dining room, we also need to do it with wine. So again, I tried to find sommeliers that could appreciate that. Like your job's not just pulling corks. I can find plenty of people that pull corks. We got to raise the bar and we want to ensure that when people leave these dining establishments, whether it's the laundry per se, the bouchons, they're as blown away by what the wine team has done as as much as the food team. And I feel like you did something pretty clever, which was start an internship in the cellar at the French Laundry, kind of get mm-hmm. eyes on some younger people who were maybe looking to break in. And then that became a talent pool that you could draw from when you saw Absolutely. people that were. Because when it, it, we were seeing it in, in all of our restaurants. Because when you think back, that basically between 04, 05, 06, the economy was just heating up. So people that had at one point been waiters were now writing code and making six figures. People that had at one point wanted to be sommeliers were now in New York. They were analysts for hedge funds and making crazy money. So all of a sudden, some of the smartest people who maybe had wanted to go be sommeliers or captains or whatever it was, they were doing other stuff. And it was also, there was a huge period of new openings that was going on in Las Vegas and Napa Valley, especially in New York. And it was hard to find great sommeliers. So I said, look, the kitchens figured this out long ago as they brought interns in and you kind of train them from the ground up. It was also, we were, we had a sometimes leaner sommelier teams because it had never been the culture to have big sommelier teams. And we said, okay, we've got to figure out that when we have all of this kind of intense wine service that is now the expectation. I mean, to some degree I said, well, I created my own problem because I put the brass ring on the table to all the sommeliers at all the restaurants And I said, I'm going to do the same thing to you guys. What Thomas did to me is I'm going to say, here's the bar. We need to exceed the bar. So all of a sudden, our wine service became much more intensive, trying to say, okay, if the kitchen can send out 18 courses, we can do 18 different wines to see if we could truly take the wine program to be the equal at the two Michelin three-star restaurants, the equal of the food. So we had to have help, but we also needed to start to groom our talent from within. So we started this thing called the Vintern Program. And how did that work out for you? Terrific. I mean, now you look at some of the Vinterns and somebody actually sent me an article of a guy yesterday, Garrett, who was a Vintern at the Laundry, who then went on to Danielle and is now working at a great top Japanese restaurant. We have guys that are now running wine programs. So I look back upon my time with Thomas and I say, okay, everything that we accomplished from two restaurants in Napa Valley that both had fame, to the time I left, we had three restaurants, one bakery and a banquet program in Napa. We had two restaurants in Las Vegas. We had two restaurants and a bakery in New York. And all of that growth, all the amazing opportunities to drink great wine, what I'm most proud of is all of the sommeliers that kind of I got to work with and watching them come in, flourish, grow, and now seeing them running wine programs. I mean, we've got a guy right now that he's the sommelier, John George. We've got a couple guys that have actually started their own wineries. So again, you're in an expansionary time when the economy is pretty good. Exactly. In the driver's seat of a beverage program. Yep. Much bigger scale. We also had the ability to now, obviously we had buying power that even though we were in different states, we could just kind of negotiate and make things work. Sometimes that was the fun part because then you got to really understand how distribution worked in a different way, how the mind of an estate and how they looked at their wines and what they were trying to do. Sometimes we all look at the wine world and we think the wine world all works the same everywhere else. And 
I've now learned through the lens of kind of my last few jobs that it's a worldwide business, but there's a difference between the wine world and the world of wine. The wine world is what we studied. The wine world is, okay, here is Chocolate, here is Sancerre, here is whatever it may be. The world of wine is, okay, how do all those things actually work within the context of the market? And how do each individual market respond to these wines? How do they get the wines? New York is different than California. California is different than Vegas. Everything's different than Japan. So it taught me a lot of also how, again, be respectful to the people who are giving you wine. And whether it's a private collector, it's a large wholesaler, it's a specialty importer, whatever it is, because it's also, you've got to remember that, and I tell somebody is this all the time, when you are in the ability that you get to go spend millions of dollars of somebody else's money, you feel like a badass. And guess what? As soon as you do not work at that fancy restaurant, you got to make sure that you can keep the jive alive and either you have established your own network, but I think a lot of it is it just comes down to basic human respect. The people that are most successful in every other part of life are generally not too big a jerks. I mean, sure, there's always you know examples I could name that don't apply to that standard, but I think when you look at the most successful people in the wine world who've been doing it for a long time, it comes down to they have, they have a respect for wine and beverage, and in turn, they have a respect for everybody who's in that universe. So you're saying when you become the high-powered buyer, don't get a big head and start treating everyone like an asshole. But instead, Very well said. At some point, you may not be the high-powered buyer. So No, and I've seen it happen before where guys who literally they thought that they walked on water and they said, oh, look at my allocations. I'm better than everybody else. And all of a sudden, they don't have the big job. And next thing they know, they can't find a job. Were there things that you realized when you're buying in multiple states that you think, yeah, that was a key moment that I learned, but I had to learn it. Each state is its own little microcosm. Make sure that as a sommelier, you n- truly know the laws in that state. I've seen it happen before where somebody came in and said, oh, well, I used to do this in this market. I'm going to do the same thing here. You can't do that. And I think it is the responsibility of when you're hired as a sommelier or a wine director of a restaurant and you have buying authority. A, I think it's the responsibility of the ownership and the general manager to ensure you know the laws because we are dealing with something that has an absolute sense of um, some legal entanglements you could get in. You're also spending millions of dollars of somebody else's money. And I think that people need to have much more respect to that because I've seen it happen before where all of a sudden sommeliers start showing up and they are new at a job and then they're at his tasting and all of a sudden they're rolling in with, you know, Meunier Moussini. I'm like, yeah, I have a feeling I know where they got that from. In other businesses, people go to jail for that, where sometimes in the wine business, we just kind of take it for granted. And I think we do need to have much more respect for the ownership and the investors and your whole staff because that's revenue out of a restaurant's pocket. And if you want to drink it, that's one of the reasons we all become sommeliers is because we're hedonists and we want to try it, but you still need to be respectful of the institutions you work for. Was there a style of service that you associate with the Per Se Sommelier team? When you look at the service there, did you think you had a certain flavor to the style of service that you inculcated? When I look back in terms of what we tried to create, and, and the answer equally applies to the French Laundry in Per Se, because we were fortunate we had these two Michelin three-star restaurants, and it was kind of coming from the same, both spawns of Keller and the team. We also wanted the ability that we could move people around, so we didn't have one type of service at Per Se and another the French Laundry. We wanted something that had an ability to, when you walked into those restaurants, both of them, because of the acclaim and the fame, 
and the difficulty in getting reservations, even some of the most powerful people in the world were a bit on edge. And I watched some guys who, you know, billionaires kind of be nervous sitting at the table. It's like, wow, this is what we've achieved. We got to bring it down a little bit. We got to ensure that people understand what's about to happen for the next three to four hours as it relates to the menu and then ultimately to wine service. And to say, we can take you on a complete adventure. If you want, we will go crazy, open up wines for every course. We'll explore the globe. Other people simply wanted, I need a great bottle of wine. I need you to leave me alone. To encourage the sommeliers to not get too geeky, because at the end of the day, it's not about their wine knowledge. It's about the client and who's in the chair, but offering them the opportunity because we were in a restaurant that we could do that. And both of the restaurants, it's still surprising that we had people that probably the only part of their life that they weren't complete control freaks was when they would come in and they'd dine at one of those restaurants because we'd worked very hard and we'd set a standard that people knew that they could trust us implicitly. And the people said, and I, every night I'd talk to the sommeliers in each of the restaurants, all the restaurants, what were some of the pairings, what were you thinking, not to tell them what to do, but to kind of coach them and guide them. And then I knew a lot of these customers and they'd call me and they're like, so-and-so nailed it today or so-and-so needs to chill out in terms of lecturing me about Chin and Blanc, that we, we wanted the environment to be educational, but not pedantic. But at the same time, there was plenty of clients that were so nervous, they almost didn't want to talk to us because of the nature of the places. And they, it was like, give me a bottle of Chardonnay and get away from me. And that was okay. The young sommeliers, they were the ones who either only wanted to go in and do these huge wine pairings, or they just wanted to like drop bombs on tables and like, look at me. And every now and then we joke about, oh, what was your big night tonight? And then finally I said, guys, the barometer of our success, yes, has to do with sales, but it's not necessarily what we want to be known for. We don't want to be known for simply having the highest check average. Because that means that we may get them once, we may not get them again. And a lot of the customers we'd never really see again. There wasn't as much regulars because it was difficult to get in. Eventually at Per Se, because we just had more people than the laundry, we started to get much more regulars. But we wanted to encourage people, we want to have a long view and encourage people to come back in. So I would say that there was definitely this element that we want to be friendly and relaxed because it was already kind of an intense environment. We also want to ability to be able to give them a, a complete education on the world of wine and take them into something or just make them happy. Because still to me, sometimes the, the best sommelier is more like a maitre d' with a corkscrew. And it's not a new idea because there's plenty of times that I was running food, that my head sommeliers were running food because maybe you just had a dining room full of, uh, they were all drinking Chardonnay. Well, that's great. Terrific. Nothing's wrong with that. You don't need every table to be drinking couche how much was Laura Cunningham a part of that service culture? She was integral to it. It was really, if, if Thomas was the spawn of the vision of, of the kitchen and the cuisine, it was Laura's vision that really came through the lens in the dining room for both the restaurants. I mean, she created the culture of the front of the house at the French Laundry. And ultimately, it's what we try to do with Per Se, that there was a level of, of detail, of sophistication, but there was also a bit of... Um, relaxation to it that and i think it really started at the laundry because it was i mean thomas and laura lived in the back of the restaurant 
that it was kind of the mom and pop restaurant, just Michelin three star and world acclaim. And she was the one that really helped that place to succeed and be what it is and ultimately allowed the opportunity to grow into other places because now there was a service environment that could equally match Thomas's food. So when you were trying to pick people for that that role, I mean, what personal characteristics were you looking for when you talked to people who you were going to hire? The premacy of the team became really important. When I was interviewing guys and they just simply wanted to tell me what they'd already done, I wasn't really interested in that. It was also, I started to look at it almost, and back to your question about interns, is more like a farm team because there was a period that all of the great major league stars, they already had jobs. And some guys didn't necessarily want to come work at the restaurants because technically they said, well, I have to work under you. I mean, there was a, a buddy of mine who, my opinion, was one of the great American sommeliers, lived in Chicago, and I tried to hire him and he says, I don't want to work under you. And I said, do you think I'm a jerk? He goes, no, I just won't have complete control. And I said, if I gave you complete control, but for him, it was more of this power thing. And I said, okay, no harm, no foul. I got it. But it taught me a valuable lesson that sometimes if you can bring in the all-star that understands the primacy of the team and how he works, great. If they don't, it's better to grow them. I had success in both elements. Um, I mean, I look back and we plucked people out of, I mean, I still remember one of the first people I hired was Andre Mack. Now gone on to do great things with his his own wine program, but Andre I'd met when he was a sommelier in San Antonio, and he come and did a stage a couple nights at Cafe Annie, and I moved out here and said, you want to come and do some time in Napa Valley, and then I'll move you to New York, and he was great, and he was our head sommelier. That was finding somebody who understood the team and what needed to be done. Then the corollary is we brought in a complete superstar and Greg Castells, who'd won you know, best sommelier in London when he worked for Gordon Ramsay, was at Bastide, was at Lebec Finn. But he understood that it was all about the culture and the team and got to a point that I could just let him run the French Laundry. And now he's gone on to you know do extraordinary things and buying martinis. And I think at the end of the day, if more people could understand how you work together, ultimately you'll have a much longer career in the wine and the restaurant business and in any business. Because if you're just going to try to be the one-man show and it's all about me and my wine knowledge – um, guess what? One day your knees are going to go out, your back's going to go out, you're not going to be the high-powered sommelier, and you're going to have a hard time finding a job. So you were actually also making wine with Thomas. Yes, there had been a project that Thomas had this vision on called Modicum, and it was a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, and that was a truly another great thing to work on. The chef said, hey, I've got this little project, let's make it work. And some of the foundations had been put into place. So I kind of ran with it and said, wow, this is really fascinating. So I'd spent so much time on the the other side, the opening side, the production side to me was almost equally fascinating for a litany of different reasons. So he and I started to grow this little Cabernet project. At first, there was just one wine. Then we were able to add on a second wine from a different appellation. And we were selling it to private clients, using it through the restaurants. And it was a ton of fun. And then I had another one of those epiphany moments where I said, Paul, here is your opportunity. If you don't take that brass ring and take advantage of it, you're always going to say, what if? I turned to my wife and I said, I'm really enjoying this. We should do it ourselves. And literally the next day, a buddy of mine's Lee Hudson, who's famous for the Hudson Vineyard, fellow Houstonian. And Lee was at the bar of Bouchon and he had his new wine coming out. And I said, Lee, when are you going to sell me some fruit? Totally in jest. Not 24 hours later, he says, you should come and talk to me. 
And I drove down and parked my car. And he says, you know, Paul, we got the Houston connection. We're buddies. You knew my brother. I've known you since you were here. I'm serious about your idea. I was like, okay, well, what, what is it? And I remember he walked me through a block. It was a famous block at the Hudson Vineyard where it was a shared block. And you walked through John Consgard's block. You walked through Dave Ramey's block. You walked through Steve Kistler's block. And you got to the end of it. And he goes, would you like for this to be Paul Roberts' block? So this is Chardonnay? Chardonnay. And it was this great selection of old shot Wente clone Chardonnay. And here you had a guy who was a buddy who was also going to make sure for his own namesake vineyard, I didn't screw it up, but he also said, here's somebody that's interested. And much like a lot of other people in my life, I showed interest. I was respectful. He now said, you're still going to have to pay for it, but I'm going to make sure you don't <laughs> yeah, right. screw it up. And you're actually going to have to pay quite a bit. Quite a bit for it. <laughs> yeah. And we pulled the trigger and said, great. And then Wells Guthrie of Copan had been a buddy for a long time, and I'd bought a lot of wine from Wells. And he said, there was this one particular Syrah vineyard that he'd work with called Hawks Butte. And he says, well, you want to go 50-50 in on the Hawks Butte Syrah, and, and we'll take the whole thing. And again, in a number of times in my life, I was maybe too stupid or naive to be nervous. And I said, sure, let's do it. And jumped in the deep end. And all of a sudden, my wife and I were full on in the wine business. And so we were making Chardonnay from Hudson Vineyard, Syrah from Hawks Butte. I was still working for Thomas, running that uh, wine program. And everything was moving along great. Then we had our first daughter in 07. Started to think, okay, what's the future? What do I want to do next? Because I'd had this great run with Thomas. And I said, okay, we can keep opening restaurants. He was already thinking about, I'd started to work on a hotel project he was thinking about. And then he was working on Bouchon Las Vegas. And I said, well, I'm actually more enjoying maybe the producer side um, in a different lens, but I've always loved being a sommelier. And I said, well, I don't know what's next. And sometimes I think when you when you just relax and stop worrying about the future and just worry about the present, the future becomes very clear to you. And I then got a phone call from a buddy of mine who'd worked for Bill Harlan named Don Weaver. And he says, hey, let's have lunch. Bill and I have been looking at your career for a long time and we need somebody to come in and be the next generation. We had lunch and next thing I know, I'm up there staring into the eyes of Bill Harlan and he's grilling me and said, hey, come join our team. Harlan also was involved with hospitality and wine. Exactly. And he saw something in you that maybe rang some bells. Here's this guy that's getting into production, but he has a hospitality background. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also where we could resonate on a number of levels. So I resigned from working with Thomas. Then Bill asked, he says, you need to give up your wine projects. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> it's mine. And now hindsight 2020, it's the best thing that ever happened because I would have had to be selling those wines basically right into the face of the recession. So he gave me an opportunity to divest of those, get square on them. And I started working for Bill and the team there. And But that must have been an interesting time to start. It was. I mean, literally, I think I started on August 15th, 2008. We all know what happened about a month later. So I get to say that I got my MBA by fire with one of the smartest guys in the wine, hotel, hospitality business right there as it was going on. So what was Bill Harlan like? If I trace back, and I think that if Thomas taught me attention to detail, Del Grande taught me tasting and intellect, Bill Harlan taught me long-term vision. And I think that it's also a totally, sometimes a totally different mentality than the restaurant business. Because even in the greatest of restaurants, if you're not building something, 
generally the most foresight you have is maybe a quarter, maybe two quarters out. I mean, sure, there's maybe restaurants that they close and they do pop-ups. But other than that, if you're not in construction and you're a restaurant, maybe you're placing your rosé order and you got to get your rosé order in soon. But you're not having this long view where in the land of of wine-growing estates, you got to think, okay, I've found land. Now I have to entitle land. I have to develop land. I have to plant the land. I hope the land is good. And then you wait, and he's got more patience than any human being I've ever seen. So he taught me about this long-term view of looking at wine in a different lens. And it was definitely a kind of a big change of view for me. He taught me, again, he had this crazy attention to detail. He taught me to be big picture thinking, taught me about business in a different form. Yeah, no, I I consider myself fortunate that I've I've had a number of people who – I've had the chance to learn from or work for that each had a little bit something different to teach me and I've tried to glean as much as I could from them. But it sounds like he set the ball in motion with this big picture plan and then the wines are coming on stream and you're brought in to help organize and sell those mm-hmm. in terms of the bond properties, which was five different wines, right? Correct. And then the recession happened. So what was your response to that? I mean, what was your response to needing to sell these wines in that kind of fiscal climate? I think it's much the same thing that you would have to do with a new burgeoning brand is you have to explain it. Here we really had to explain it because there was not a lot of interest in wine around the world, especially not a lot of high-end wine from anywhere in the world, Napa Valley, because there was this point that I mean, I still remembered like a year before in New York, where it was a badge of honor to be in a dining room in New York or Napa Valley to drink Jaye, to drink 1900 Margot. That was kind of what you did. It showed that you'd arrived. Um, now, people didn't want to be seen drinking a $200 bottle of wine, much less some like a unicorn wine. And we were in the land of. Very that was in ex- bad taste. Extremely like, bad taste. To I mean, publicly I, be drinking. It I made mean, you look like Bernie Madoff or Exactly. I mean, I still know there was a, actually a sommelier that worked for us in New York, Annie Terso. Then she worked for us at Per Se, and then she went back to the Mandarin. And one time I asked her in probably early 09, I said, well, how's it affecting your sales? And she goes, well, what's happened is people don't drink the wines in the dining room. Now they would go and they do it in their rooms. So you simply saw that certain people were still drinking the wines. You just had to get creative in terms of how you were going to encourage them. So we kind of retooled the approach of what we were trying to do with Bond in terms of communication and the message and the narrative. And we went out there and it was kind of the old classic drag in the bag and pulling corks and explaining the story. I was most happy we were able to come through that. The economy rebounded pretty quick. We also had the opportunity to, I think, more differentiate Bond from Harlan Estate. Which was probably tough to do. It was because, I mean, it was always baby brother. And I said, well, I'm not interested in being baby brother. It's also harder to sell baby brother. I mean, exactly. You know, and five wants, wines versus one, know, 10 years ahead. Everyone wants the top thing. Everyone I mean, wants the top thing. Know. And so I worked with our team very closely to say, okay, we need to differentiate to ensure that both are great wines, but we're going to have a bit more terroir delineation, a bit more focus, a bit more messaging in terms of what goes on so that people don't look at this as secondary to this. They each needed to stand on their own. 
you didn't want to be the baby brother. You need to have your own thing. And it was an amazing kind of opportunity to work with him and run that estate for a few years. So what it seems to me like what he did was take the idea of mailing list and just run with it. Like he took Mm -hmm. the idea of direct-to-consumer to another level with Napa Valley Reserve and really building a portfolio of wines that was based on, we have this strong mailing list for Harlan. We can piggyback on these bond things that we're really excited about and get more quantity into the system, even though bond is not that big. It's probably, what, 3,000 cases total? Something yeah, I think like we that. grew at the height. We were about 4,000 cases. And at the same time, it seems to me like he really pioneered getting out into the world. You guys were like in 50 markets and stuff, like mm-hmm. different countries. Different countries. No, I mean, I, I again, back to that kind of ism, the world of wine through the lens of working with Bill, I now got to see how wine works in Stockholm, in Paris, in Tokyo, in Beijing, in Vancouver, around the world. And it's all a little bit different. You know, there's certain places that certain wines resonate, certain places they don't. There's definitely a lot of commonalities. It taught me an immense amount about what to do running a wine estate, what not to do. It was great, but no, it was definitely a worldview. Because that seems like a different kind of evolution for Napa, like different than the idea of someone driving down Highway 29, trying some wines at a winery and then buying them, taking them back. It sounds instead like you guys are like, look, there are consumers out there in the world and we want to get them on our mailing list and we want to get them drinking our wines wherever that is. And it's not going to be a local audience anymore. It's going to be a global one. Is that fair to say? It is. I think that when you rewind the clock, and you basically look at the year 1992, pretty much from mid-95 to mid-96, that 12-month period, is when the first releases came out from the original cults, Harlan, Screaming Eagle, Bryant, Araujo, and Colgan. And they were all pretty small, what was different about all of them. And I remember, I kind of grew up with these wines. I mean, I still remember pulling corks on the first vintages of these wines and going, damn, these are different. They are really good. And they were all on hillsides. They were off the valley floor. People accused them of, uh, of making wines in a certain style. Well, now it's just I think you had full ripeness. You had vineyards that were young because they'd pretty much just been planted, most of them. It, but they were also disease-free so they could get ripeness. The vine material allowed for more ripeness because it was virus-free. Exactly. I mean, and I think that's sometimes a big misnomer about when people look back in time and then they – wax poetically sometimes about older wines and alcohol levels, what they don't understand is that, well, that's all the alcohol those wines could get because they had so much disease. It'd just be like if all of a sudden you had some disease, you can't necessarily perform at your peak. Now we had clean vine material, post-phylloxera. We went into this beautiful array of great vintages. Now all of a sudden we could get ripeness. Did at one point we collectively as Napa Valley maybe get a little far? Absolutely. And I think that's the evolution of any great wine growing estate. It's happened everywhere in the world. And when people begin to, I think, throw stones at the new world about going too far with ripeness, they don't think they have a true understanding of the international world of wine. Because I can say I can make absolute data points of every great wine growing region where somebody went too far, then they went too lean, then they went too far, they went too lean. And it was part of our evolution. And I think now when you look at the wines being made at the top level, what we're trying to do, you see that, yes, they are going to be richer than what maybe wines were in the 70s. But that was also a period of time when people were trying to make European wines, lean wines. Some of them haven't aged that well. Some of them were green then, they're still green. 
We will see how a lot of the great wines of the 2000s continue to age. I get to try them all on a regular basis. They're still aging pretty beautifully. But as long as you start with all of the great components for ageability, if you have tannin levels, you have acidity levels, you have fruit, why wouldn't the wines age just as gracefully as something that maybe wasn't as ripe? This is what I don't quite understand about this argument happening these days. When you're not just dealing with production, but when you're dealing with managing the production on a financial plan, what arises to the surface from that realization? You've got to have a long view and you have to be able to definitely kind of weather the storm. Or when I think back in the restaurant business and those kind of strengths and weaknesses you could identify in your restaurant, well, now you've got the vagaries actually of agriculture. Whereas a restaurateur, oh, I can't get the Sancerre I want to pour by the glass because they had hail, well, I can go to somebody else and trade it in. Or I can't get the fish purveyor from here, but I can go from here. Well, we have what we have. So when you now have a totally different respect for producers around the world, when all of a sudden you hear about vagaries that go on in vintages and you go, man, that's tough. Or sometimes as a buyer, you just kind of shrug your shoulders and went, well, you can't get me what you wanted. I mean, I still remember a couple of times when I was a jerk. I still remember one time I kind of, uh, I, I got PO'd at Neil Rosenthal because I couldn't get a big enough Fourier allocation. And I said, I was one of the first buyers of these wines when he came. And now you're telling me I can't get any more. And Neil sat me down and taught me a very valuable lesson. He goes, listen, dumbass, it's about agriculture. And you now get to live it. You now get to see it in a totally different form. You've got to think about how your wines are, are thought of on an international scale because in the world that I'm fortunate that I get to live and work in, we have an international business and like everything else in the world, the world is flat. The internet, um, you can't hide. If you're trying to dump wine somewhere, you can't hide. You also need to constantly be thinking that your messaging is correct in terms of how you're telling your story around the world. I feel like that cold phenomenon was really built by having it on the top restaurant lists. Is that still a relevant marker or has it really become a private consumer market? You know, it's a very good question because for a long time, that was a great focus was top end restaurants because restaurants can still be a great lens for letting people experience your wines. We're not selling an inexpensive product by any means. And with restaurant markups around the world, Sometimes the wines can still be very expensive, yet it's still a great avenue for us. There's still a big chunk of our wines that are sold in restaurants. But I also came at it through the lens, and maybe it's because I started in retail that I said, well, sometimes retailers are looked at second-class citizens. And I don't quite understand that because for Colgan, I looked at it and said, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't we sell wines to K&L? Why wouldn't we sell some wines to Zaki's? Because they're probably selling our wines anyway because they bought them from a private collector when they bought a seller. So they already have our wines. Why wouldn't we just sell it to them directly? Because they're already selling the best wines of the world. So I look at it that we just want our wines to be sold by the right people, the right outlets. Whether it says on or off premise to me is not necessarily as, as cogent of a conversation as long as it's the right place. Because there's plenty of restaurants that we both know that they may not be the right place to sell certain wines. Restaurants, I think, are still a remarkable place. Sommeliers do such an extraordinary job turning people on to different wines, but it doesn't mean that you can't find that same level of intellect, knowledge, and passion through a different lens. Does that imply that the private consumer has changed somewhat? I mean, I see some people mm -hmm. that seem quite avid, you know, to have the kind of knowledge about wine that I would associate with the sommeliers of a previous generation. 
even when I'll go and teach intro master sommelier classes, you now see people that, oh, hey, I'm a lawyer. Hey, I'm a doctor. People want to learn. I've got a buddy of mine. He's in tech and he's about to, if they take his paper and they accept his paper, he'll be a master of wine. So I do think that now wine, much like food, has become such a great part of our culture that people want to learn more. Sommeliers are always going to be ones who are in this great kind of on the front line, so to speak. But you're now seeing that in terms of a much wider view of people who have influence on the market. A large chunk of our business is dealing with private clients around the world because we want to have that direct relationship, just as we want to have the direct relationship with the sommelier or the great specialty retailer. But I do think that what you, you end up at a point when the wines become so expensive that you can go off the deep end. And I think there's certain wines around the world that have done that. We always need to be cognizant of that we want people to, at the end of the day, want to drink our wines, not just look at them as museum pieces. It seems like Harlan really had the idea that he was going to take the hospitality center focus of Napa Valley and take it up a couple notches. Do Meadowood have the Napa Valley Reserve Program where people come and kind of feel like they're part of the process? Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the lens of the hotel, and that was the first thing he did. Then he started Maryvale, then Harlan Estate, then Bond. And then Napa Valley Reserve kind of came about the same time as Bond as he saw an opportunity. People were coming here and people wanted to learn. And I think at the end of the day, again, one of these things that you take away, he saw that you be hospitable and you teach people and generally you're going to have a very long life with that customer. And it's something that we try to do every day with our team is educate our team in all aspects of hospitality, service, any element that they have because they are all going to have to deal with the public in one way or the other. At the end of the day, we've got to say, yes, we're growing an agricultural product through the lens of wines, but we still need to make sure that we can relay the story. Otherwise, we're just making an expensive bottle of grape juice. And what was the segue to Colgan for you? My wife's first job after graduating from college was working for Ann Colgan's cousin. So we had talked on the phone, knew each other. When we moved out here, the first winery I actually visited was Colgan because we'd stayed in touch. There was a connection that it existed because we were so, the laundry and Colgan were so close. And then I'd done a lot of tastings with them. Then when I was with Bond and Harlan, there was a point when Bill's kids were coming in the business. And I said, I knew Bill had always said he wanted multi-generational, long-term thing. Um, when I started, the kids didn't seem interested. Now all of a sudden the kids seem interested. And I went to him and I said, I love you. I think you're great. You taught me a lot, but you're now, your dream is now coming true. Um, so I you know, ran out, rode off into the sunset, and now his kids are staking over the business, and it's exactly what I think is great for him, great for them, exactly what he deserved. And then I had this chance when I started talking to Anne and Colgan and her husband, Joe. They didn't have any kids, and they said, you know, we've been doing this for two decades. We would love somebody that we know we trust to come in and shepherd this property so it doesn't just fade away. So I, again, count myself lucky that you uh, right place at the right time and remain friends with these people. And now it's been three kind of glorious years working with them. What's that mandate been like? When you're operating at a level that already is successful, some of it is A, don't screw it up. B, it's also how do we constantly work to um, ensure that on a wine quality level, it's freshness, precision, minerality. We know we get ripeness. How do we get the ethereal? Ensure that when people pick up a glass of wine, that 
They want to smell it as much as they want to drink it, which is not always what you associate with Hillside Napa Valley Cabernet, especially in this world we live in. Focus on that, ensure that we continue to grow as an international business, to go to different places around the world and to say, look, I know you've only drank the great wines of Europe. Here's what we're doing in California and try them. And then people go, my gosh, this is brilliant. Different than Europe as it should be, but equal quality. And that's sometimes the most exciting part of the job is it's much like sometimes being a sommelier when all of a sudden you pour these bottles of wine for people on the dining room floor and they were like, wow, this is crazy. I didn't know wine could be this good. Now we get to do it in an international view. Do you think that there's, you know, because sometimes I feel like I've talked to a lot of people in the restaurant business who may never have tried to wine. Do you feel like there's something that people misunderstand about Colgan as a wine or as a property? Absolutely. And it's something that we want to continue to make sure that we stay close to sommeliers around the world. Because I think what ends up happening is you get to a point in wine and when they do get expensive and they are rare, we don't make a whole lot of wine and then they don't try them, they fall back on the least common denominator. And I'll tell you a story about a valuable lesson that one of my original mentors in wine taught me, this guy, Lenore Josie, who was the big collector. And it was my first trip I was ever taken to Burgundy. And Lenore knew everybody in Burgundy. And I said, I'm so excited. I can't wait to go. And I started to have this erroneous view that everything in Burgundy was better than everything in the United States. And he was wise enough to say, here's what I want you to do. Okay, I'm going to set you up. And I mean, it was, again, it was like murder's row of properties that on my first visit I got to see when you could actually go see them and you'd say, oh, look, it's La Lubis Green You and hey, it's Dominique Lafon and Robert of Valen. And he says, doesn't matter the village you're in, any village. He says, after you go and visit one of these great properties, I want you to walk outside, walk around the square, and I can almost guarantee you what you're going to see is you're going to see this little, one of the little sandwich boards that's chalk where it has writing on it. And he goes, more than likely, it's actually going to be in the shape of a goose. And it will be this goose wooden cutout, and it will say Degustation EC and list all their crews. And find the little board that has the greatest list of premier and grown crews. Go and taste. I was like, oh, why? He goes, just go and taste. And he was totally setting me up. And I went, and I actually left Rousseau, and had this amazing tasting with Rousseau. Walked out, and there, walked around for a minute, and turned the little corner in Gevray, and there was the goose. Degustation EC. And it was Mazi and Charm and... Chevrolet Village and Corbo, and I was like, ah, I got to go. This is where I'm going to go taste. Walked in. I don't remember the name of the producer. Walked in. It was the worst tasting I've ever had in my life. These wines were just swill, nasty. And I kind of looked at it, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, what on earth could you take these famous climas and you screwed them up? So I came back, quickly had lunch with my buddy Lenore, and I said, okay, I did what you told me to do. I mean, thanks for setting anything up, but why in the world did you make me go to this, like, place with a goose out front? And he says, because you have an erroneous view of what you think quality is, because what ends up happening is as a sommelier or a wine buyer in the United States, all the importers have left all of the bad European wine or bad Australian wine or bad South American wine, they've left it back there because this is the greatest wine market in the world. It's the most sophisticated. So at worst, we see B quality wine. Everything else is going to be above that because they're only going to generally send the great stuff to the United States. He says, you as a sommelier, you have a big target on your back because if you're a producer from California, well, everybody wants to be in the Cafe Any Wine list. So he says, and how often do you get to try? How often do the guys from William Selliam come and pour you samples? Never. You just buy it because you know it's great. When was the last time that Bill Harlan came and poured you a sample? Never. You bought it because you knew it was great. 
Well, Burgundy, you're just buying these wines because you know they're great. It doesn't take a smart person to buy Rumier. It doesn't take a smart person to buy Rouleau. They've established themselves over the course of years. And it taught me a valuable lesson to not necessarily look that one country's wines were better than the other because in the United States, we're the main market for United States wines, and they all need to sell them to this very small group of sommeliers and retailers, and especially as sommeliers have gained popularity. So I tell that story to young sommeliers because I was one, and I remember having this weird view of what certain wine-growing regions were, only because I wasn't always seeing the best of it because the best didn't need to really show it to me. They knew I was going to buy it anyway. It was everybody else who was trying their hardest, some people having success, some people not, that you get an erroneous view of the whole nature of the quality of that wine-growing region's wines, where if you're a sommelier and you're buying wines from the Jura, I know the Jura is hot right now, I can guarantee you that in the United States, maybe there's 20 producers imported, 30 at the max out of probably a couple hundred. Well, the others have been left behind by the Kermit Lynch's, by the Eric Solomon's, by whoever, because they didn't meet the standard that they knew the American wine public wanted to be. So I think it's a good thing to always realize how you look at the view of international wines and great wines. And back to your original question, it's still important for us to be in the lens of sommeliers because sometimes they've never had the chance to try the wines. So many times when I travel, I mean, we don't need to travel. I could sit up on the hill and we could sell every drop, but it's important for us to constantly have new people understanding what the wines, because generally when we pour the wines for somebody the first time, they a bit have the aha moment. They go, wow, wait, this is different than what I expected. Like this is like really good. Sure. It's rich, but it also has freshness, perfume, minerality. There's texture, there's length. And then we'll open old wine for them and say, and here's how, here's what a 10 year old one looks like. Here's what a 20 year old looks like. I have none to sell but you can see that ageability. And I think that's something that more collectively at the high end of California we need to do. That's why I think Daniel was brilliant with La Palais because yes, it's created a unique problem in Burgundy, but there was, Burgundy wasn't that hot when, I mean, I started going to La Palais for the first time in 2000. There weren't that many people there. Not a lot of people knew what these wines were. Now you can't find them. Every sommelier wants them. Every collector wants them. He took the time to promote a region. Are there other times when the sommelier part of your career has really reflected into the estate manager part of your career or vice versa? Building teams, first and foremost, no matter what you do, is the core essence of what I think we as sommeliers sometimes think that it's a one-man band or a one-lady band. Some great advice I got one time was to say, your job is if you've done your job really well, this is Robert O'Grande, if you've completely nailed your job. I should see you at the end of the bar drinking a margarita. I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, because you know that your team, you don't have one sommelier, you now have 12. And building teams is the core essence. You have to be, teach your staff. You have to be hospitable. And I think that's something that we try to bring to the winery in terms of training everybody on what it means in terms of speaking to each other, building the team, a cohesive unit, in terms of tasting wines from around the world for two decades, bringing a different view of contextually how our wines fit in to the world, I think is very important. And then just combination of through the years, all of these mentors have added something of long view, attention to detail, how to think, it all comes into play. 
Paul Roberts has succeeded by making sure it's not a one-man band. Thank you very much for being here today. Levy, thanks so much. Good to have you in Napa Valley. Paul Roberts of Colgan Cellars in the Napa Valley. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This interview was made possible with the assistance of Napa Valley Vintners, a nonprofit trade association committed to promoting and protecting the Napa Valley.